morning, church. I came out of the wrong side. Now I'm going to be thrown off all morning. I had a packed house this morning. Just kidding. If you heard that on the podcast or if you are seeing that live stream, we do not have a packed house this morning. It's empty. Um, and there is space between everyone. Well, um, as Pastor Matt said, happy Thanksgiving. We, uh, this week we're able to do something a little bit uh, unique in that because, um, because our sermon series that we have been working through in Acts ended last week, and we're about to begin an Advent series next week, um, we have kind of a week off. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about being grateful and being thankful. And see my slides up? There you go. Look at that. Giving thanks. Um, one of my favorite discoveries um, a couple of years ago on Valentine's Day was that there are uh, Valentines available online. Uh, they are Puritan uh, Valentines. And um, if you've never heard of these, then you're in for it, I'll tell you. You know, uh, these Valentines so perfectly sum up what it is to truly love someone, but also truly want to live a holy lifestyle. Um, I, didn't, um, I didn't have time to put them on my slides, otherwise I'd show them to you guys, although that'd probably violate some copyright or something anyway. But, um, but it's really the messages on them that are the best anyway. So um, just imagine like, a little drawing of a person or something, and, and, and I want to share with you some of these because I think they're so incredible. Um, and I did give one to Ellie the first year that I discovered this. Um, the first one says, uh, just a picture of a, of, a, of, a man, of a woman, a beautiful woman, a drawing of a beautiful woman. Uh, it says, I need you. And then on the inside it says, to help raise livestock and crops or surely we will starve to death come winter. <laughs> right? You know, it's because it's true, right, that it's, that it's so meaningful. Um, there's another one. It's a picture of a man and a woman in their Puritan garb. It says, you almost make my heart dance, and dancing is forbidden. Um, another one, this was the one I gave to Ellie. It just has a cross on the front. It says, my love for you is an affront to God, um, which is, you know, to the Puritans, everything was an affront to God. And, um, and then the, the last one I'll read you guys, uh, it, which is really good too. It's kind of familiar. Roses are red, violets are blue, and neither one, and neither are useful or necessary at all. <laughs> Just a reminder, right? Uh, one, of the, one of the definitions, uh, historical definitions of a Puritan is someone um, with the suspicion that somebody might um, somewhere on, in the world be having a good time. Uh, that is, uh, that's one historical definition of what a Puritan is. But we, we celebrate this holiday, Thanksgiving, and we remember it as one that goes all the way back and is rooted in the tradition of the founding of our, of our nation, it, that, it, that it comes from these, these Puritans and really these, these pilgrims um, who came here first, landed on Plymouth Rock in the 1600s. Um, but, surprise, surprise, not the first time somebody is, you know, talking about something in history and says, uh, much of what we understand about the first Thanksgiving is it pretty inaccurate in terms of uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, information about what people looked like back then, um, about 
the, the description, the only written description of the actual Thanksgiving feast that happened the first fall after the first harsh winter in 1621 in Plymouth was about three sentences long, and it was written by the assistant to the governor um, of that colony. And he wrote it in sort of a passing description of this meal that they had where they went to catch, they, they went fowling, is, is what he said, basically to hunt for some birds, and that the Indians came, and they, um, they caught five deer, so actually they had more deer than anything else. Uh, and, uh, and they all ate together, and it said, I think it said they, uh, they, had, um, many, um, they had many recreations, uh, which is how I've been t- describing Thanksgiving this year to my family. You know, oh, we'll have many recreations, guys, don't worry, many recreations. And then, and then they specifically says, he specifically says, like, waving their arms about. So I guess they, like, spent a whole day just, like, doing this, and that's how they had such an awesome, incredible, crazy first Thanksgiving meal together. Um, but, uh, so much of what we understand about that time is sort of a picture that we've painted in our mind. And one of the things that historians say is that um, we have a tendency to uh, take our understanding of, um, or, or, or kind of in, imbue or fill the past with um, our understanding of things now, the way that we like for things to be now. And this is something that you have to try really, really, really hard not to do for somebody who's studying history. Um, in the 1300s, Marco Polo, uh, the famous explorer, was, um, uh, he was out exploring, just doing his thing, and he um, was in uh, exploring the area of Sumatra, I think the island of Sumatra, when he, uh, he discovered, he said, dark, massive beasts with a single large black horn in the middle of their forehead. And of course, you hear this and you think, it's a rhinoceros, right? But that is not what Marco Polo thought he was seeing when he saw this massive beast with a horn in the middle of its forehead. He had only ever thought of or heard of one creature that has a horn in the middle of its forehead, and that is a unicorn. And so he believed that what he was seeing when he saw the first rhinoceros that he had ever laid his eyes on was a unicorn. And he said in his journal later, these ugly brutes were not at all such as when we described them, when they let themselves be captured by virgins. Uh, so he's like, man, all this talk about unicorns being beautiful, uh, really just not, not, not the case, you know? Now, now you hear that and you go, well, um, I, think I, I think I didn't plan out my slides very well, so my next slide is, uh, yeah, I have to go back now. Can you go back, Steve? Um, just to my title slide, if you could do that. This, you just pretend like you don't know that that's there. I didn't plan my slides out very well, and I didn't want to stay on a picture of a unicorn for the 45 minutes I'm going to spend talking about Marco Polo. Just kidding. Um, when he saw uh, this animal for the first time, he used the only thing that he had in his mind uh, to, to try to understand what it was. And, and as ridiculous as we might think that is, what would we think if we had never heard of a rhino, right? If we had never, uh, weren't aware of the fact that those things exist in that kind of area that he was in. This is an example of how we kind of are presented with facts and information, and then we take all of the stuff that we've learned and experienced in our lives, and then we use that to interpret that information. And sometimes it comes out pretty backwards. Sometimes it comes out really accurate. 
the, the pilgrims, this group of people as we know them, actually have a lot that they can teach us about um, why they were celebrating um, and thankful. And, um, and a lot of it, I think, is very timely in even this year as we find ourselves, as Pastor Matt was talking about, just celebrating the holidays. You know, everyone's got their Christmas lights up now because it's like Thanksgiving, you know, whatever. Um, you know, that's like the nice thing about, you know, 2020, I guess, you get to see Christmas lights early. The sad thing is it kind of feels like everyone's just like, oh, you know, let's just get there, you know, let's get there, let's get out of this year as fast as we can or something. But I think that there's something about what we're experiencing now that actually helps us to understand a lot better what it was that people experienced at the very first Thanksgiving meal together, these pilgrims. The pilgrims were a group of people that lived in the 17th century, which is the 1600s, if you get confused by those, as I often do. Um, and they lived in this town uh, that I'm going to try not to say wrong all morning, of Scrooby. Scrooby. It's just one letter off of Scooby, and so I'm probably going to say that. And that's all I can think of whenever I read about them. But they lived in the town of Scrooby, which is 150 miles outside of London. They lived in this small kind of farming town, and the Reformation had been in full swing for a while, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on with religious belief and groups of people in England. And, uh, and this, uh, there was a group of people uh, who, uh, who were these, uh, they were called Puritans, purists, um, by most, um, which meant that they, they were a group that wanted to have this pure form of faith. Um, and, uh, and, they, and, and in reality, though, the pilgrims weren't Puritans. The pilgrims were different. The Puritans were this whole other group of people. You see, the Puritans had a desire to purify the Church of England. They wanted to go to America eventually. They wanted to start the best version of the sort of Anglican church that they could, and, uh, and that's what we read about and hear about, and um, it sort of becomes Boston and, and this very well-known group of people that come. The pilgrims were a group of people who, in this small farming town, simply wanted to um, have freedom from the Catholic religion and the Anglican religion and all the things that came with that. And they were, they were really bothered by the fact that church and state had been joined together. And so the idea was you had to be a part of the church. You had to like pay for things that supported the church. The church and the government were intertwined with one another, and they just felt that that was inherently not what the Bible described as what it is to be a Christian. These people were manual laborers. They, they lived in the same town, most of them, that their parents had lived in and that their grandparents had lived in. Um, and they, uh, they gathered together with the postmaster in his house and began meeting as a church. And after several years, they began to be persecuted because they, uh, their, their preference of being free from the Church of England was interpreted as a desire to rebel against England and the crown and, oh, no, we got to be worried about these, these farmers in this farming town. You know, they're going to overtake everything, I guess. And so they eventually fled. They said, we have got to go somewhere where we can just worship freely without persecution, without being arrested, without being, uh, you know, find and without being ridiculed, and so they ultimately decide that they'll go to Holland, they'll go to Amsterdam, and because that was a place that 
actually there was a lot of religious freedom. Now, the thing about the pilgrims is they were fairly naive. They weren't very good at setting things up. And you know what? Honestly, if you're going to be pilgrims, you should probably be better at planning trips. But they're not very good at planning trips. They need a really good travel agent, it turns out, because they, uh, the first thing they do is they find a Dutch captain. They give him a bunch of money, and he just takes it, and then he turns them over to the police, and they end up spending a month in jail. Not great. Uh, the next uh, no, the next, yeah, I think the next spring after that, they have to wait a year. The next spring after that, they get another one, and they, they get on this guy's boat. And the men get on the boat first because I, don't, I think they, because they, don't, they don't let women and children get on the boat first because they don't trust the sailors with women and children. How do, how, what, like, what, right? These people spend, like, months on boats together? Yikes. I don't even trust you while you're, like, while we're loading the ship. Um, so the men get on the boat first. The captain starts to see some authorities coming. He gets scared. He sails away without the women and children. And it takes them three months to be reunited again in Amsterdam. Too much recreations and arm-waving and stuff. And so eventually, they finally get on a ship, and they get to Amsterdam, and they, and they move there, and they find this wonderful place where they can worship freely. But they're now living in basically a big city, this big city, with, um, which, which interestingly enough, as it's described, describes many of the big cities nowadays. Because the place where they wanted to go to worship freely would ultimately, of course, be a place with lots of different religious minorities. Because that's what a place like that looks like. And so they end up uh, going from this small English village to Amsterdam, this big city, and they end up living there with uh, all different types of people, Jews, Catholics, Lutherans, Mennonites, Moravians, Quakers, even Muslims are living there in Holland with them. And they lived there for 11 years. They bought a house for their pastor. That's good, I like that. They bought a house for their pastor, but it was so they could meet there. Okay, it's kind of a catch there for the pastor, right? Uh, it's a good idea. You need to buy them the house, and then you always can knock on the door. Um, I've had people tell me, like, don't do the parsonage thing because they'll always be knocking on the door, you know. Um, they, they buy a house for their pastor, and they meet there. And for 11 years, they're there, and then eventually they decide we want to move to these new colonies that want to move to America. Now, our understanding of why they came to America was for religious freedom, but they already had religious freedom. The reason that they wanted to move was because while they saw religious freedom in their present reality, they didn't see a way forward as a community. They were, they were poor. They were working their fingers to the bone. They were, they, they, most of them were involved in like textile work, and they did it in their homes, and their whole families had to do it. And as a result of it, they were just completely overworked and overburdened, and it said that they were aging too quickly, and even their children... It said we're dealing with all of these like uh, medical issues, and uh, they were they were like they were also it said like aging and feeling it says uh, decrepit in their early youth, and this gave rise to rebellion. So their kids were getting worked too hard. Basically, their kids were going, "Hey, all this stuff about being faithful to God, this life kind of stinks." But all these other Amsterdam kids, their parents let them do whatever they want to do. Because apparently parents in Holland were pretty lax. And so these kids are rebelling. And, and the parents also go, I have no idea how I'm going to provide for my family as I get older. Because I've got no, we've got nothing saved up. We don't see a future here in this community that we feel led to build. 
And so they said, we have to go somewhere where there's more opportunity for us to not only worship freely, but also to actually build some kind of a community together. And so that ultimately is what leads them to the Americas. That's what ultimately what leads them to North America. So, so rather than being people who specifically are leaving where they are there, as, as you've already gotten the, the hint, they're not very good at traveling, so that's a big decision for them. And yet they go, not for, uh, the funny thing about it is what I think about, about these people, the pilgrims, I think like, man, I, 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 don't, I don't have any way of understanding what it's like to be them because I've always had religious freedom, I've always had the ability to worship freely, and yet when I hear about their real concerns and the reason why they moved, I think, I can actually relate to those things a lot more, I think. They didn't ultimately come to America for just their religious freedom. They worried about their children's future. They were fearful of the effects of this sort of permissive, pervasive culture on their families. They had a hard time making ends meet, They even were just afraid of losing their English identity. They were like, we're English people, we're not Dutch people, and we want our kids to grow up in that kind of a world. And so ultimately, again, they do a few bad jobs of putting together a trip, and they finally are able to leave on the Mayflower. In fact, the trip that they have to take from Holland to get to uh, where they leave on the Mayflower Uh, the captain decides as they're getting on, man, I really regret this decision. So he has them load a mast that's too big for the ship, and it makes the ship start to sink and fill with water so that he can be like, guys, I don't think I'm I'm your guy, you know? Like, this is the kind of stuff that happens to them. And so they finally pile onto the Mayflower, and it's like a bittersweet, like, memory. 102 of them leave of, like, the 400 that are living in their town. And they say, you know, if we do well, the rest of you can come and meet us here in this new place where we're going to go. There were 102 people on this ship. There were 18 married couples. There were 35 children and youth on this boat. And so for the better part of two months, they lived beneath the deck because, uh, like, one guy came out at one point during a storm and he got thrown overboard. And he was lucky enough that like a rope had come untied and was trailing behind the boat and he grabbed onto it. So this is, you know, you hear stories about, you know, God's providence in people's lives and you think, well, yeah, I I think I could see that here. They spent the better part of two months, all of them together, below deck in an area the size of a school bus. They got very close. And they saw themselves ultimately as these pilgrims. They, they, they came to the new land, and it's no surprise that we read that when they landed, that they kissed the ground and praised God because they got out of a boat that they were sharing with people. It's like anything is better than this, right? But when they get there, they were expecting to pull up on like Jamaica. That's what they were thinking it was going to look like, palm trees and rainforests and all that stuff. And it turned out it looked exactly like England. It's all dreary and cold and overcast and rocky. They get to Cape Cod, they spend two more months just kind of sailing around Massachusetts trying to find where they're actually going to set up this place to live. And they ultimately find a place in Plymouth. They land there and they discover an abandoned native settlement. A few years before, a tribe of natives had been wiped out by disease and they discover a cleared 
area for planting crops. They discover huts. They discover a big meeting place that they make into a church. They even discover an underground-like hold of dried corn that they use to plant their first crops together. And they come in, and they begin to survive or try to survive their very first winter. The first winter is, is an infamous one. It is a famous one. Really, the first winter for any settler is like, that's the, that's the refining fire. And it literally does, in a sense, sift out. Because what starts out as 102 people, they lose 52 people in their first winter. They lose half of all the people that came in the first winter alone. Most due to sickness because they were just cold and wet all the time, but also due to starvation. They like scurvy, all these terrible things. And then, as they began to interact with the local Indians, and through this, this guy, Squanto, who was real, Squanto was real. I mean, you literally, you know, as you read history, you go like, I, I kind of am going to expect that, like, I find out that everybody is somebody that they just made up to teach me in third grade, and then it turned out it was like some different thing. I don't know. Squanto's real. He's a guy who had been had this crazy story of traveling all around and being kidnapped and being a slave and being freed and coming back, and he spoke English. So he brokered basically this sort of peace between them and the other natives. Because disease had had such an impact and it wiped out so many Native Americans, there wasn't really a threat to these pilgrims in this area where they settled like there was even to the Puritans in other parts of Massachusetts. And so he brokered sort of a peace between them, so much so that the Indians, uh, the Native Americans would come and they would, they would like stop by. They would drop by all the time. They would just drop by and be like, what are you doing? And like, you know, let's hang out. And like, there was a point at which one of the leaders had to actually go and sort of very graciously uh, like communicate, we, uh, just so you know, like um, if you continue to drop by, which is fine, we, we won't be able to entertain you as we have in the past because we've got a lot of work that we have to catch up on and stuff. And so eventually as they survive their first winter, as they plant their first crops, as they grow a pretty decent crop of food, they do indeed have this sort of celebration, this meal together in the end of October in 1621. And it says that natives uh, came, Indians came, probably not because they were invited, but because they just came. And they brought their own food, and people sat down, and people ate. We know nothing about the first Thanksgiving besides that information right there. And yet there is a lot that we actually if you understand these people, where they came from, what would happen to them eventually, what was going on in their minds at that time, that their thankfulness, their gratefulness, speaks a lot about people who desire earnestly to live for Christ, to, to truly be people who are those that are pilgrims. The first, and so, okay, here we go, three things that we can learn from the pilgrims. Can't believe I'm giving this sermon, I'm so excited. Three things we can learn from the pilgrims. First, this is going to shock you guys because you're not going to see it coming. I'm going to get, they, the pilgrims weren't patriots. I know, right? You're like, wait, what? When we talk about our forefathers and we talk about the pilgrims, we generally do this 
because we are speaking of those that founded our great nation, and as a result, they represent the founders of a nation in many ways. Now, yes, of course, many who speak of forefathers and founding fathers speak of those that signed the Declaration of Independence, fought the Revolutionary War, but there's something about the Pilgrims, the Puritans, about the, these people, these groups that started and came over and risked everything at great loss for this new place, this new place of this land of opportunity, who worked hard and survived, right, as a result. It was the great sort of testing of it. Now, the truth is, uh, every colony or region of the United States kind of has its preferred forefathers, its preferred, you know, area, the place that it likes to think about that, that started it all. But when we think about these people, these Christians who came over seeking a future and a community and a life they could build while also being able to serve Christ rather than this big giant church of England, we often do think about them as, you know, patriots. These people were here to start a country, a government. In fact, in fact, if something, and, and, and this comes up anytime that we are concerned with the country itself, right? Thinking about how it was founded and what it was founded upon and, and the, the ideals and the principles. But the truth is this group of people who were showing their thankfulness to God and who were celebrating the fact that they were alive and they had survived this first year were doing so not as people who had set out to start a brand new country. They were doing so as, you're never going to guess, pilgrims. You're like, so far you're not blowing my mind. I already knew that. They're called pilgrims, okay? They are and saw themselves as people who had been displaced and who were on a journey, and here's the key, who hadn't yet arrived. Their celebration was not, we finally found the promised land. Much of the Reformed theology of the time began with William Tyndale, the translator of the first English Bible, who himself was a, uh, a, a Bible sort of teacher and scholar who taught a lot on the idea that in his interpretation of the Bible, he became aware of this idea of covenant that God was a God of these covenants, that he had covenants with his people. And he was a very firm believer in covenants, and people misinterpret that now as he was a legalistic person, meaning he taught the idea that, that if, if we do things for God, then he'll reward us with things. But what's interesting is if you read his works, he is he is staunchly opposed to any idea that we can earn anything by doing good things. Uh, it is the difference between saying, um, God loves me because I do good things, and saying, I do good things because God loves me. And when we think of covenant, we think of this, we think, well, these were people who were seeking uh, the new promised land. These were people who were seeking a place to make their own. And as a result, when they landed in Plymouth, and America began, as all these groups were formed, what we now live in, is it true? Could it be? Is it the promised land? 
But this isn't how they saw themselves. Get ready for some boring quotes. Robert Cushman, one of their leaders um, and a lawyer who stayed back in England, said this, God no longer gives particular lands to any people, as he once given Canaan to the nation of Israel. But now we are in all places, strangers and pilgrims, travelers and sojourners, having no dwelling but in this earthen tabernacle. 1620, Robert Cushman said this, as they were setting out. They were setting out on a voyage, knowing not that we're going to find the promised land, but that we will spend our earthly lives as pilgrims and sojourners. But we can do these things that are so hard at great cost, risking so much, knowing that death will be involved for many of us. Why? Because we will be in the promised land. Because it is our confidence in what we are assured in Christ, not our confidence in this thing that we're going to go build, but our confidence in what we are assured in Christ that gives us the courage and the ability and the freedom, really, to go and do these great things. Why is the first you know, woman across the, um, the Oregon Trail a missionary seeking to reach people? Uh, a, a journey and a trail that uh, cost you your whole life because you couldn't come back? It was a one-way thing because this person was driven by something bigger than just building a big and comfortable life. It is true that often throughout history, in the name of Christ, people have done great things because their faith in Christ has freed them up from the constraints of the world, not because they're trying to build something of the world or for the world. William Bradford, the leader of this group, the governor whose wife died in shallow water as he was investigating the coastline, trying to find a place for them to ultimately set up their home, said this. He said, with an abundance of tears, the group left that godly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place nearly 12 years, but they knew they were pilgrims and looked not so much on those things, but lift up their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits." Uh, Historians would say there's no doubt that as he's writing this, what he's doing is writing with Hebrews 11 in mind, which says, these all died in faith after a list of all the faithful people, not, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on this earth for people who speak, thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These were a people who were incredible and inspirational and able to do some pretty incredible and risky things. But it wasn't because they were seeking to build an empire on this earth. It was because... They had confidence in the empire, the kingdom they were already a part of. And they had accepted the fact that, as we often talk, as the Bible says in so many different ways, we are called to live as sojourners, as wanderers, as people who know, like the Israelites wandering through the desert, that the promised land is ahead, but we haven't obtained it yet. The pilgrims... We're not uh, these people who, in thankfulness, celebrated all that God had given them and done for them. We're not doing so thinking about 
the, the earthly things that they were building. They were thinking about the fact, having just lost half of their number. Uh, they had gone from 18 uh, women to 14. There were now more children, more young people than there were adults. Also, pilgrims apparently were very short. So if you want a mental image, think of a bunch of short men with a bunch of kids that they don't know what to do with, okay? It's like some kind of a sitcom. I see a potential here. I think we need to like totally run with it. That, that's got a couple seasons in it. The second thing about pilgrims, you're really not going to like this one. The pilgrims didn't believe in holidays. I am sorry to say, but they didn't believe in holidays. One of the things that bothered them the most about the Church of England was the calendar of holidays and holy days and the prescribed ways of every single year remembering things and what that seemed to do to the people in the group. The idea that you do a certain thing at a regular time, no matter whether you feel like it or not, they saw all this bad stuff coming from. In fact, they only really celebrated, they would say, one holiday. They thought Christmas was a pagan holiday, Easter, a pagan holiday. They celebrated one holiday, and it was the Sabbath. They said, because that's the only one that we think God seems to still really be pointing out as a big thing. And boy, oh boy, did they celebrate the Sabbath. I mean, it was true that like in, in their times, in their colony that they lived in, people were, were roaming around the streets looking for slackers on a Sunday morning, going, get in church, get in church, get in church, right? I mean, one of the reasons why we have said that like we've realized even during this, this quarantine that, that meeting together is such a priority for us is the fact that we recognize there is a big difference between being able to gather together and worship corporately and collectively and, and doing that from a distance, They didn't believe in doing things out of compulsion. The idea that you, 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 this is what we do every year. This is how we show that we are thankful. And yet, one of the holidays that we celebrate the most, we ascribe to a group of people like this. Uh, one historian says this, he says, historians have noted that allusions to the past are often employed to justify cultural traditions. If we can prove that a contemporary custom has a long history, we validate that custom by giving it the sanction of precedent. And if we can link the precedent to specific heroes from the past, figures that we admire for some reason or another, the moral legitimacy imputed to that contemporary practice becomes all the greater. It's a fancy way of saying uh, we have a tendency to look to the past, find someone or something, bring it back forward and say, look at how old this thing is. See, the thing that I do, the thing that I like, the thing that I value is obviously an important thing. It's bigger than just me. It's bigger than just this time. And yet most of the time, um, our, the things that we celebrate are more a reflection of, of us now than of the things that we're often remembering. But the truth is that they did thank God and they were thankful. And in fact, the Thanksgiving that we know of in that first winter was not, I would argue, and, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense to see it this way, it wasn't really their big Thanksgiving. Their big Thanksgiving came a couple of years later. Two years later in July of 1623, they had another Thanksgiving. 
And this one was not a feast. It was actually more of a praise service, more of a thanking God kind of a service. And, uh, and they did it because things, believe it or not, had gotten even worse. Uh, weeks after the first Thanksgiving, they were surprised by the arrival of the ship Fortune, another ship, which was empty other than like no supplies and 35 new people that they dumped on their shores and said, feed these people, and then they left. The boat was empty. They had no supplies, so they had to actually give food to the crew and send them back with food, even though they themselves were starving and barely had enough. Then they had a really bad season, and they barely had enough food to grow and to live off of. They had a bad harvest, and then, starting in May of 1623, the heavens closed up, and it stopped raining, and their corn, the thing they lived on, began to wilt. And so, uh, and then right, uh, right after a few months of that in July, another boatload of people arrived, of course, and were like, hey, there's more of us. And there was this thing where every time a boat would come, half the people would be the people they wanted, and half the people would be random people, and they don't know why they're there on the boat. People come in, they're not interested in being pilgrims, they're not interested in being anything, they just want to come. And so they had a, a day of prayer and fasting. They said, we're going to fast and we're going to pray, and have an eight, they had an eight-hour prayer service. And when they ended their eight- or nine-hour prayer service, the sky had gotten cloudy, the rain had begun to fall, and then it began to rain again for days afterwards. That God had answered their prayer, and, and, and it says in one quote that they don't know what was lifted from wilting faster, the corn or their own spirits, but they responded to that with a service of praise and thanksgiving to God. This tells us probably the most important thing about thanksgiving in the way that we would want to remember it, and it was this. The pilgrims were thankful in suffering, not in abundance. We think of thanksgiving as a time of celebrating abundance. We think of it as a time of celebrating this great abundance, and it's actually a lot easier to think of it that way because I know for me, growing up in America, I've only ever known abundance and Thanksgiving is like me getting stuffed beyond any possible measure uh, and then eating even more after that, sitting with the family around a big table and enjoying great abundance of the things that I have and the life that I've been able to be free to live. And yet, their Thanksgiving came not in abundance. It came in survival. And these people trusted God so much. Their faith in God was so great that even after so many had died and perished, even after they would continue to encounter harsh circumstances again and again, they would find themselves praising God and thanking him and saying, God, you are good. We know that you are in control, and we know that you love us. This is what Thanksgiving was truly about for them. Thanksgiving, the way we understand it, is a relatively recent invention here. Um, it went largely unspoken of for hundreds of years, and it really just, depending on the state of our country at a given time, it would become more popular. Um, there were lots of times when the entire country wouldn't want to celebrate uh, uh, New England's way of starting out the nation. In 1867, the President Andrew Johnson he said there was a, he, he declared it a national Thanksgiving day. He said, according to a recent custom, is what he said. 
1867. In 1905, Theodore Roosevelt uh, talked about the country's first settlers during Thanksgiving for the first time that it had been ever like, oh yeah, it's the thing with the settlers, and that's something that we're going to do. 1939, Franklin Roosevelt finally connected it to the pilgrims of all the settlers. So our understanding of this is a fairly recent thing, and it is an opportunity for us to gather together, and the question is, what do we gather together for, right? What, What do we express our thankfulness and our gratefulness for? Is it for the abundance and the things that we have? Is it for uh, the country and, and the place that we live? Is it for how grateful we are that we're not like other people? Is it for um, the fact that God is good, that we can trust in him? And is it amidst abundance or is it in the midst of suffering? William Bradford, their leader, said this, He said, we colonists who survived in spite of all our weaknesses and shortcomings know that God is strong and we are weak so that those in like cases might be encouraged to depend upon God in their trials and also to bless his name when they see his goodness toward others. This makes us think of 2 Corinthians where Paul says, speaking of the thorn in his flesh, But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As people of the kingdom of God, we have the incredible privilege of being able to be grateful more even when life is hard, more even when we think of loss, more even in harder times than in abundance. And we do that because if it was up to us, we would build a country in which we are fully independent of God and any need to rely on him Our desire, sin in us, creates in us a desire to be self-sufficient, self-reliant, fully independent from everyone and everything, knowing that there is nothing we have to trust in outside of ourselves. And then we would love to celebrate that we have done that. But for the Christian, thankfulness and celebration comes in recognizing that it is only in our weakness that all the cloud of that arrogance fades away and we are reminded that it is truly God who is life. It is God who is our strength. It is God whose kingdom we are truly a part of. This is why these people would continue to be thankful, would continue to be grateful, and would continue to strive to worship their God and to pass that on to their children. We're going to end in communion this morning, and I cannot think of a better way to end this time than to praise God and to remember that which we have every reason to be the most thankful for. Psalm 84.5 says this, 
Blessed are those whose hearts' strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. We long, like any people, to be fixed, to be home, to be amongst our own people in our own place, and yet, blessed is the heart that is fixed on God. That is a heart that is enduring and living in pilgrimage. It is only because of what Christ has done for us that we have any hope of being part of a greater kingdom. How glorious and wonderful is it that we don't have to worry at all about the kingdoms of this world in comparison to the kingdom of God? That we can be grateful and we can be thankful knowing that the true king that we serve, the true people that we are, are a people who, yes, are wandering, are, yes, are sojourners, yes, are in a pilgrimage of our own, but we are already citizens of heaven, and that is what we have to look forward to, and it is only because of Christ that we can do that. Um, we're going to pray, and then Pastor Matt's going to come up and lead us through communion, and then we'll end this morning in worship. Father, we long to be a people who are truly grateful to you, and we want to be able to be grateful amidst abundance, Lord. We want to be able to sit and say, God, thank you so much for all that we have. And God, thank you that I, even for some of us, if we're honest, pray the prayer of the Pharisee who said, God, thank you that I am not like that person. Thank you that I am not like this person. Thank you that I am not the sinner that person is or the impoverished person that person is. Father, would you... Um, Remind us of that which we can truly be grateful for. That which we have to be profoundly thankful for, Lord, which is your Son. As we partake of the Lord's Supper together for the first time in so many months, Lord. Something that we regularly scheduled, we regularly did, Lord. That now we do this not under compulsion, but out of an overflow of our appreciation and gratitude for you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.